0: Last week, the Supreme Court announced that it has formally adopted a code of ethics endorsed by all nine justices. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode of We the People, we'll dive into the new Supreme Court Ethics Code, and we'll discuss outstanding questions about how it'll be applied and enforced. Joining me to discuss this important question is Professor Daniel Epps of Washington University School of Law and Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas School of Law. Daniel Epps is a professor at Washington University School of Law. His work focuses on Supreme Court reform, and he's co-written with Ganesh Siddharaman, about proposals to reform the Supreme Court. He currently co-hosts Divided Argument with Professor William Bode, a podcast that analyzes the court's work. Daniel, it's great to have you back on We the People.
1: Glad to be here, Jeff. Thank you.
0: And Steve Loddick holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in federal courts at the University of Texas School of Law. He's the co-host, together with Professor Bobby Chesney of the National Security Law podcast, and he's the Supreme Court analyst for CNN. He's editor and author of One First, a weekly newsletter about the Supreme Court, and the New York Times bestselling book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Steve, it's great to welcome you back to We the People.
2: Thanks, Jeff. Great to be back.
0: Dan, you told the New York Times that the new code of ethics reflects a recognition, if nothing else, that the court had to act. You said it's good that they did this. It's good that they feel some obligation to respond to public criticism and act like they care. But you added, in terms of the content, it doesn't seem to move the ball much. Tell us more about your general thoughts about the Supreme Court ethics code.
1: Yeah, so uh, two different points. The first one being that, at least in terms of some statements by individual justices, the response to uh, the series of ethics controversies uh, that have been going on for uh, the last you know number of months, um, the response of some individual justices, and particularly I, th- I think it's fair to say Justice Alito, has been, this is ridiculous, this is partisan criticism, Nothing to see here. I can't believe anybody would second-guess us. And this statement, um, this press release, uh, you know, with the attached code of conduct, doesn't take that approach. It takes the approach that, you know, there's been a misunderstanding in the public. Um, The People seem to think we don't follow any ethics rules. And we should correct that. We should tell people actually... Uh, we do follow ethics rules and here are the rules. And I genuinely think it's a good thing if the court at least acts like it has some obligation to show the public that it's legitimate, that they deserve our respect, and really to not act like they're holding people who maybe don't agree with them in contempt, which I think, you know, sometimes we see that attitude from the justices, you know, in, in public statements. And I so I think this is a step in the right direction. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's striking that they all were able to uh, agree with it. Um, and, you know, especially given that, you know, individual justices had said things in, you know, the last recent months and years about, oh, maybe we're working on this in the background, but, you know, there's not necessarily agreement. So I, I didn't necessarily expect that they would be able to all agree not just on the content so much, but just agree to even do this, right? Agree to even produce a document like this. So I think that's good. Um, In in terms of uh, the content, um, you know, my sense is that really it is what it purports to be, which is not a radical change from prior practice, Uh, but basically what they claim to be um, sort of, a set of principles that come from various places that they follow that they've never kind of gotten together and put all in one place. And so it doesn't, I think, you know, purport to really, it it doesn't, in fact, it doesn't purport to change any of the rules that the justices follow or at least claim to be following. But it does put it all in one place. And that's something, right, for members of the public who... Are trying to evaluate what the court is doing. You know, you can say, well, they put out the statement in 1991, or they, you know, there's this thing by Justice Scalia about his recusal. It's helpful for people to be able to say, okay, what are the what are what are the rules they follow? Let's let's take a look at it, and maybe this doesn't break new ground, but okay, we can we can hold up their actions in light of this. We can say, does it square with this their own set of rules? And then we can ask a further question, which is, are these good rules, or do we need more?
0: Steve, in your uh, Substack post, One and a Half Cheers for the Supreme Court, you said that uh, against the backdrop of the court's initial refusal to adopt a code, the fact that the court felt the need to take even the half steps reflected in the code of conduct is, to me, really striking. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what Dan said is exactly right. I mean, it's been, you know, seven and a half months since ProPublica um, published its first couple of stories about Justice Thomas, and then the subsequent stories about Justice Alito. And I think it's you know this is a court that, as as you guys know very very well, moves glacially when it moves at all, um, and that it's moved this much in less than eight months is nothing short of remarkable. Um, and I mean, I think the to me that the important point is is that even if you are unsatisfied, as I am, with what they actually adopted. And even if you think that there's still the you know pesky little problem of enforcement um, that you know the code doesn't address and couldn't address, it is still a remarkable concession on the part of the unanimous court that it actually has some responsibility to assuage public concern and to respond to this kind of public pressure in ways that, as Dan says, Justice Alito had pushed back against rather vigorously in you know, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and a pair of interviews in the Wall Street Journal. And so I, I think, you know, this is why I'm sort of of two minds of this. I think it's a remarkably salutary development from the perspective of the court reminding us that we matter and that public discussion of public debate about the court actually resonates inside the court. While also, I think, highlighting the extent to which there's still a long way to go um, and in which, you know, the sort of the broader problem that I think the ethics piece is just a symptom of, which is a more holistic lack of accountability on the court's part, really is not going to be solved by the justices alone. And we should not expect it to be solved by the justices alone. And so I think that's why you, you really do have both sides of the coin um, in the release of this remarkable and yet I think deeply flawed document. Both of you talked
0: about uh, helping the public feel like their views matter. And there's a sentence in the ethics code, which uh, you both noted. Uh, The justices said the absence of a code has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in the country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. Dan, did you... Take that as a defensive statement or a candid statement, and, and what did it say about the justices' attitude toward public opinion?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I would I would necessarily call it defensive in the pejorative sense, but I do think that part of the statement, you know, that you zeroed in on is really to me the most striking part of it, because it is a direct acknowledgement that, you know, about what the public thinks about the court. Right,, um, which we see the court do sometimes. in certain cases, the court will sometimes say, "Well, we have to do, this came up in it's come up in abortion cases. We have to do X or y so that we have public legitimacy. It's very controversial. But for the most part, you know, the justices seem to rest on this idea that we're just going to do our jobs, and it's up to other people to kind of, you know, make decisions about whether we're doing them well. And here is a place where every single justice on the court, you know, I think, you know, the, the statement, it's a statement of the court. And then later you have all the justices signing on to the code of conduct. Um, But uh, we're seeming, seemingly willing to say, gosh, there's this public misconception and we should correct the record. We should tell you all that that's not the way it works. I think it's striking and I think it's important. And I, you know, I, I'm i basically where Steve is. I think that, you know, th- this part of it is commendable.
0: Steve, what do you make of that sentence? You, you said if the question is what led to the misunderstanding, the statement identifies, it sure seems like the culprit is not the lack of a formal code, but the alarming reports of behavior by several of the justices. And you suggested that a more candid Response might have been more appropriate. Tell us more.
2: Yeah, I mean, more candid, Jeff, or at least less uncandid, um, if those are different things. um, Right. So I think it's pretty clear, even to folks who are more sympathetic to the court and to the justices whose behavior has been the subject of all of these stories, that it was the stories that sparked this conversation and not the absence of an ethics code by itself. And so it's a bit, I think, too clever to try to suggest, oh, we're here to correct a misimpression that you had based on the absence of this code, when insofar as it's a misimpression, as opposed to just an impression, um, it's not because folks went looking for a Supreme Court ethics code and didn't find one. It's because folks have been reading these very salacious and troubling stories from ProPublica and other outlets that Have raised, I think, very serious questions, not in all cases. I think some of the stories have been a little ridiculous, but in at least some cases, about the behavior of at least two justices. Um, And so I just, you know, it seems like it might not have been realistic to expect the court to say that this was a reaction to these stories. But then I just wish the court had said nothing, right? Then I just wish that there had been no attempt to sort of attribute cause. Because now it looks like The statement is trying to say, oh, you poor misinformed members of the public, um, when it seems like what's really going on is, you know, oh, you worried, troubled members of the public, let us try to tell you why you shouldn't be worried. Those are different conversations. And so I just, I I think it was just, it was an awkward note to start on, because it's literally, right, like the fourth or fifth sentence of the opening statement. Um, And it really sort of makes this whole project seem a lot more defensive than I think it had to be to be successful.
0: Of course, the big uh, news items that gave rise to the ethics code include Justice Alito's Wall Street Journal interviews, the questions about Justice Thomas's great-nephew's tuition, Justice Sotomayor's book uh, sales. Um, Dan Epps, would the new code have changed the way the court deals with any of those allegations or not?
1: You know, my understanding uh, is uh, not, and not necessarily that it it purports to, to the extent that the justices have acknowledged that at least in some cases, there are certain things that should have already been reported as gifts. But it does not purport to go above and beyond pre-existing requirements, saying the justices shall never accept gifts and so forth. Um, it suggests that uh, the, it says a justice should comply with restriction on acceptance of gifts and the prohibition on solicitation of gifts set forth in the Judicial Conference regulations of gifts uh, now uh, in effect. Um, you know, it, it does, you know, have some language about justices' family members. Um, there's some, you know, you could say, well, are there implications about this for, you um, you know, Justice Thomas and Jenny Thomas, there's been some questions raised about sources of payments to her, you know, they're not categorized as gifts. But it certainly doesn't have something that says, you know, justices shall not accept gifts. Um, and I think that, you know, there are, there are questions you can made, uh, make about different things, right? There's the justices taking trips on, on private jets, Um, you know, which is one thing, Um, you know, there, but there's some more recent, you know, uh, you know, uh, allegations in particular, the one that that really, I think, stands out is this question about Justice uh, Thomas's RV. And, you know, he got a loan from a friend. We have some serious uncertainty about exactly the terms of the loan and was it forgiven uh, as a gift. And so, in in that case, I think, you know, something that would really be, you know, demand the justices be maybe more forthcoming, right? Maybe there's reasons that we want them to be even more forthcoming than uh, we expect kind of ordinary judges to be. And I don't see that.
0: Steve, the section that Dan flagged is uh, Section D, financial activities, D3, a justice should comply with the restrictions on acceptance of gift and prohibition on solicitation of gifts set forth in the judicial conference regulations on gifts now in effect. And then there is some further definition of what a member of a justice's family means. Here it means any relative of a justice by blood, adoption, or marriage, or any person treated as a justice as a member of the justice's family. Do those definitions of familial relationships change the context? And, and how would these allegations be dealt with if Justice Thomas were an appellate judge?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I don't know that they actually change any of the episodes that have been reported. I mean, I think it's—I think you can make a pretty good argument that absolutely none of the stories um, that have been reported would clearly fall on the wrong side of of these new rules any more than they already did. Um, right? That that doesn't change the status quo. Um, you know, if it were a lower court judge, I mean, we have a process, and p- part of the problem, Jeff. Let me take a half a step back. Is much of what's happening publicly is, you know, pro Publica runs a story and folks who might already be somewhat skeptical of the court or some of the justices, you know, say, oh, my gosh, here's another example of corruption on the court. And folks who are defensive of those justices or the court rush to defend them by, you know, sort of conjuring arguments of varying degrees of persuasiveness about why nothing wrong happened. And, Jeff, that's where it ends. Um, right, that the the debate is hashed out in the court of public opinion, and there's no arbiter of who's right. Um, And it seems to me that that problem persists, even under this new code. First, right, even the provision you read says should, not shall, um, suggesting that it's not even a mandate. It's just a sort of a norm, like that we should do this. But second, Jeff, who's the person who's going to decide the next time there's one of these cases, whether in fact, you know, a family member received improper consideration, right? Whether the person at issue falls within the definition of family member, which is to some degree, as you read, subjective. And the answer, at least under the current system, is the justices by themselves. Um, That's a contrast to the lower courts, where the lower courts, there is a process in place where if a complaint is filed, there's a mechanism by which other judges can review the complaint, can act on the complaint, can arbitrate whether in fact the complaint of conduct transgressed the relevant rules that's not possible for the justices i mean even i who am fairly critical of the court agree that the constitution forbids putting someone else above the court when it comes to judging the justices behavior but there's other ways to get at solving that problem and the you know the code that the justices put out last week is just mum on the subject right that that even in the future we're gonna have the same interpretive disputes where the justice does whatever the justice is gonna do, the justice's defenders try to rationalize it, and the justice's critics say, no, this violates the rules, and the conversation just repeats in this permanent feedback loop.
0: There are canons parsing the rules included as part of the code, and there's one detail which seems new, Uh, It says, in regard to the financial disclosure requirements regarding teaching and outside earned incomes, a justice may not accept compensation for an appearance or a speech, but may be paid for teaching a course of study at an accredited educational institution. And then it says associate justices must receive prior approval from the chief justice to receive compensation for teaching. The chief justice must receive prior approval from the court. And then finally, compensation for writing a book is not subject to the cap, Dan, is that new, and why that interesting mechanism of associate justices getting approval from the chief and the chief from the court?
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, quite interesting. Um, Steve may know, but I don't know uh, for certain. My sense is that's not new, but maybe not necessarily something that is in writing somewhere else. I'm not totally sure. Um, you know, there are you know there are other places where the chief justice has certain kind of decision making power with respect to other justices. Um, the chief justice has to kind of certify that uh, a retired justice is doing their job in order to continue to have an office and a law clerk. And I, I think it's a very important thing for you to highlight because it does not fully answer, but it does maybe give us the beginnings of an answer to, to Steve's concern. And and um, just to back up a second, you know, I think there are two concerns you can raise about this. And one is what's the content? What are the rules? And the other is, what's the enforcement mechanism, and who decides. And that shows you that, you know, there is some hypothetical way you could imagine having the decider not be a justice him or herself, right? You could you could make it just the chief who reviews these things, and if there's any complaints, uh, you could make it the other justices collectively, uh, and not including the justice who's the subject of the complaint, and, you know, put them in a position where they're supposed to kind of look at it. Now, in terms of practical effect, uh, I'm skeptical that even that solution would make much of a difference because you think about the justices, they're all going to work together for decades. And they all are trying to be collegial, play nice with each other. And I think for any given justice, they're probably going to be disinclined to go out of their way to call out one of their colleagues and say that their colleagues uh, is behaving unethically. Because they, you know, first of all, they want to just get along and and not be acrimonious in the conference room. But maybe they want to kind of be able to persuade that justice on a substantive legal point in the future, um, even if they disagree about a lot of things. And so I think any given justice is not going to want to poison the well. Now, as a response to that, you could say, well, maybe no justice or the chief is going to be willing to call out a colleague that said if you have to write it down and check with somebody else maybe that changes your behavior maybe if you're saying you know uh, i have a friend who's going to forgive this massive loan uh for a vehicle and again we're not 100% sure exactly what happened there um and i'm just going to have to run this by my colleagues um you might think uh, you know i i really don't want to do that like that that's going to make feel a little awkward and maybe they're going to ask some questions about it and maybe i should just just not do that. So so maybe that's something, even if the other justices are maybe not going to call them out. And in any event, you know, don't have the ability to remove <laughs> remove their colleague from, from the bench. I mean, the other justices can't say, you know, you're impeached and you're removed from office. That That's just not the way it works. And so, but maybe that's something.
0: Steve, what do you make of that provision authorizing the chief to give permission to the associates and the court to Authorize the chief. And I'm just going to read a little more of that provision, which is interesting. Justices may not have outside earned income, including income from teaching, in excess of an annual cap established by statute and regulation, although the book writing is exempt from the cap. Do, do you happen to know what that cap is? And then I'll, this canon closes by saying. In deciding whether to speak before any group, a justice should consider whether doing so would create an appearance of impropriety in the minds of reasonable members of the public. What do you make of all this?
2: Um, you know, it's funny. One of my friends, uh, Leah Lippman, who's one of the hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, referred to this as the uh, as the Federal Society Permission Provision, um, right? That is basically sanctioning the justices' practices of going to speak at Federal Society conventions. You know, I I must confess, I am less troubled in the grand scheme of things by the justices speaking to groups like the Federal Society or the American Constitution Society, or going to, you know, other sort of institutions that have some perceived political or ideological bent. I mean, being part of public discourse, I think, is part of their job. I think that, to me, really pales in comparison to some of the more in my view, shady and nefarious financial arrangements with you know wealthy benefactors, the travel, the gifts, et cetera. I do think that you know the sort of the notion that the chief now has at least a little bit of, if not rulemaking power, at least norm setting power, um, is an interesting step. But again, it is such a it's to call it a half measure is to radically overstate it. Um, right. The the problem again is is who is actually going to police cooperation and compliance with these bounds. And, you know, I've, as Jeff, as you know, I've been on the, the soapbox about creating some kind of Article Three Inspector General, um, not necessarily so that you can have a disciplinary body. I don't think you could create an officer who could discipline the justices, but just as a way of having some kind of ombudsperson monitoring when the justices are even complying with the rules they've laid down um, that could then publicly report that compliance, right, to us, to Congress, to whomever. Like, that to me seems like a much more meaningful step toward actually ensuring that whatever the rules are are followed than just, hey, the chief can set a cap.
0: Your proposal of an inspector general raises the important question of enforcement. Of course, this code decided in favor of self-enforcement, but the canon ends by saying after quoting Justice Tom Clark about the need for judges to bear the primary responsibility for acquiring appropriate judicial behavior, the canon says the same is true for justices. To assist the justices in complying with these canons, the chief justice has directed court officers to undertake an examination of best practices, drawing in part on the experience of other federal and state courts. The court will assess whether it needs additional resources in its clerk's office or office of legal counsel to perform initial and ongoing review of recusal and other ethics issues and will also consider whether amendments to its rules on the disclosure obligations of parties and counsels may be advisable. Dan, right now the clerk's office of legal counsel is rather small. Is this suggesting that it might be ramped up and, and how significant is this part of the canon?
1: You know, uh... I wouldn't necessarily um, take that as a promise uh, for the court to uh, do anything. I mean, the court (laughs) sometimes says, you know, we'll look at that. And then they look at it and they say everything is uh, fine. Now, I mean, one thing it might be suggesting is less that they're going to hire some ethics expert who's going to give them substantive advice about, um, you know, oh, you know, should you accept this gift? it might be something like we're going to have a better process for identifying recusals. Um, and there have been some examples where justices have voted in cases where it turns out they own stock. And you know, to my understanding, the process heretofore has been a lot of it has been chambers-based. You know, you've got the clerks, they're sort of looking for cases in which Justice Kagan participated as Solicitor General. And so maybe having uh, a slightly better process there of, you know, kind of double-checking, you know, let's make sure that there's this isn't a company that's owned by a company that Justice Alito has shares in, that's probably more what I'm imagining rather than... Um, someone who's going to really you know, be addressing the kind of larger concerns uh, that we're worried about. You know, again, that's not nothing. I mean, it raises this other question about, you know, should justices own individual stocks at all? I strongly believe that they should not. I think it's inappropriate. Uh, there's, there's ways that they can sell their stock without incurring capital gains. I, I think they should all take advantage of that. Um, but if they're going to continue to do that, I mean, it would be great. <laughs> it would be great for them at least to, Uh, to not, you know, to avoid cases where they're voting. Uh, Because, you know, again, I don't think that they're actually, I don't think that any of them are consciously voting in ways that are designed to pump up the stock prices of stocks they own. Nonetheless, as this code recognizes, these kind of rules are not just about avoiding impropriety. They're about avoiding the appearance of impropriety, which really matters. We need people in the public to believe that you know, our judges are not crooks, right? We need them to really believe it. And that requires them to do more than just not actually be corrupt. It requires them to be uh, a little bit more removed and uh, to to erect kind of a, a wall, right? Um, that That is a little bit of a ways away from actually the core of unethical conduct.
0: Stephen, talking about enforcement, you've noted that Congress historically has exercised great substantive control over the court's jurisdiction. It made the court's entire 1802 term disappear when Congress eliminated it in the fight of the Jeffersonians against Chief Justice Marshall. And also that in a 1868 dispute over the constitutionality of military governments in the South, Congress stopped the court from resolving individual cases. You know, your great book on the court reviews some of this history. What is the history of Congress's battles with the Supreme Court tell us about what Congress could or should do in the future?
2: Well the could I think Jeff is easier than the should. Um, so the could is a rich history of Congress using any number of levers to nudge the court in different directions. I mean you mentioned some of them um, you know I recently wrote about how Congress used to use the control of the justices' pensions as a way of nudging justices off the court or keeping them on the court, um, right? Congress using its power over circuit riding as a way of keeping the court at least somewhat in line with Congress's preferences. There's a lot Congress could do. Congress could expand the court's docket. I mean, right, the court's currently hearing the fewest cases each term since 1864, um, all with an eye towards sort of getting the court to be more beholden to Congress and to the democratically elected branches. Um, what should Congress do? I mean, I think, you know, the the real question for me remains accountability. Um, and just how do we put pressure on the justices to, as Dan put it, right, to, to avoid not just impropriety, but to actually be incentivized to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And, you know, the code of conduct is not going to do it by itself. Um, so whether that means having some kind of Ombuds person who can actually look at all of this stuff, right? Um, whether it's you know starting to talk about whether some of the court's budget should be beholden to the justices agreeing to certain things, um, right? I mean, one one statistic I think a lot of folks don't know: um, the Supreme Court's budget request for this fiscal year is 151 million dollars. Only three million of that is the justices' salaries, which are constitutionally protected. The other 98 percent is leverage. And so, you know, Jeff, to me, it's not so much about any one specific reform as it is about Congress once again just reminding the court that they're one of three branches um, and that, you know, one of the things the court should be doing is trying to look like it is responsive to public pressure, to public pushback, not because we want the court to follow the election returns. We have an independent court for a reason. But judicial independence is not supposed to be the same thing as judicial unaccountability. And so, You know, for me, the story is hey, Congress, you are best situated to leverage the court to put pressure on the justices so that they actually want to look like they're over enforcing these rules. You have to take some measures to actually, you know, get us there, to actually move us in that direction.
0: Dan, what does the history of Congress's efforts to influence the court? say now that we're back in one of the most polarized times since before the Civil War. For for much of the 19th century, as Steve suggested, there were open attempts by Congress to control the court, eliminating its term in the Jeffersonian era, expanding the number of seats leading up to the Civil War. Things really didn't settle into a nonpartisan harmony until after the Taft reforms of the 1920s and the defeat of FDR's court packing plan. Now that things are really polarized, might we see a Return to that kind of tug of war, and is that good or not?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I agree largely with what uh, Steve just said, and this this question is something uh, I've thought about. Uh, I have a recent piece co-written uh, with uh, Alan Trammell about jurisdiction stripping, about which is you know the tool by which Congress can do some of what Steve is talking about: remove cases from the courts jurisdiction as a way to uh, nudge them. And one of the things, our takeaways is, is, you know, this strategy, you know, is fraught, right? The court can push back on it. But, you know, doing it and also threatening to do it does send a signal, right? It tells the court, um, we're watching you and you have gotten a little bit out of line with uh, a big chunk of public opinion. And, you know, some of them care about that. Some of them don't. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, With Steve, I don't think that they should just, you know, take an opinion poll and that should decide uh, every case. But I do think that if they're doing stuff that is extremely unpopular, uh, very controversial, uh, very divisive, um, that might be a a place where we want uh, courts to step back uh, from the brink a little bit. And there's a ton of historical examples of them doing that, um, of, you know, You know, them sort of seeing that they're facing, you know, a lot of the examples that uh, Steve uh, talked about um, in that, you know, Jeff, you set up in in your question um, are places where the court was maybe going to do something. And Congress was like, you know, here's what we're going to do, uh, or, or did something very aggressive, and the court maybe stepped back from the brink. I think, you know, are we going to see that? We're already seeing that. We're not seeing that in terms of Congress actually going out and passing jurisdiction stra- statutes. We're seeing that in terms of uh, members of Congress proposing things that would have been radical and unthinkable, I don't know, maybe five years ago, six, seven years ago, uh, certainly a decade ago. We're seeing, you know, actual senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives coming forward with, you know, court packing bills. Let's add justices. We're seeing people coming forward with bills uh, that would, uh, you know, impose term limits by statute. Now, do any of those have a meaningful chance of passing today, given where Congress is? No. Um, But it's changing the conversation. And, you know, if I was a justice, I certainly would feel maybe a little bit more like the institution is je- in jeopardy uh, than it has been uh, in decades. Now, one other thing, though, to say about that long run of historical episodes, what we do also see historically is the court over time developing more and more power and prestige, right? The court now is pretty unrecognizable from the court 200-plus uh, uh, years ago where they didn't have a building. They were just sitting in the you know basement of Congress, Um and uh, they were not, you know, the court you know, now declares federal statutes unconstitutional all the time. Um, they really have kind of put themselves in this position of, you know, we're the teachers and we're checking Congress's homework. And, you know, that's newer in the long run of history. That's something the court has, has kind of earned over a long time. And and maybe um, we're going to start seeing a, a, the old paradigm emerge, which is other branches saying, you know, no, uh, that's not what you are. You, you are, um, you know, you're co-equals, uh, but we have a big role in interpreting the Constitution. Um, you're not right about everything. And maybe, you know, over time, uh, we will start to see a little more of that equilibrium return.
0: Thanks so much for that and for letting us know about your new piece, The False Promise of Jurisdiction Stripping, written with Alan Trammell, which we'll post on the resource page. Um, Steve Vladek, what does the history of uh, efforts to control the court by Congress say about what kind of pressure is effective? And are there kinds of pressure short of court packing that might be effective in this era in the future?
2: Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that you really can get an appreciation for, especially if you look to before 1937, I mean, we're, we're so fixated on thinking about the court packing fight in the FDR administration as the be-all end-all, but there are lots of smaller examples of Congress nudging the court. Um, during Reconstruction, for example, uh, around about the same time the House had even just sort of introduced a bill to require a supermajority to strike down acts of Congress— Um, You see the court actually taking a bit of a softer stance towards some features of Reconstruction. You know, in the sort of early 1900s, you see Congress um, responding to some of the court's decisions at the early years of the Lochner era, where the court is more aggressive in striking down economic regulation. Congress responds by limiting the powers of individual federal judges. Um, To actually issue those kinds of injunctions. So, you know, Jeff, there's there there are lots of examples that are very context specific, but that all have at their core the notion that, you know, Congress is not supposed to tell the court how to do its job. Um, There's this Delphic 1872 case, U.S. versus Klein, that actually comes pretty close to saying that almost literally. But Congress can basically provide lots of carrots to the court to act in ways that Congress believes are more responsible. And then when the carrots don't work, that's when we get to the sticks. And I think part of the phenomenon that we are witnessing today, whether you're a progressive or a conservative, whether you you have strong views about the court or not, what I think really makes our current court stand out is not its ideological orientation, it's the lack of dialogue between the court and the democratically elected branches. It's, you know, Justice Alito says in the Wall Street Journal in July, Congress lacks the power to regulate us, period. Um, He's clearly wrong. But the fact that that idea is even in the zeitgeist, I think is reflecting this, you know, absence, this departure of the kind of institutional pressure that historically I think put a lot more pressure on the court to behave. I mean, just one really, really brief example when Justice Fortas resigned in May of 1969, he resigned at least largely because of pressure from, you know, his colleagues on the bench, from Chief Justice Warren, and from Congress. Um, at the, the where the concern was that if he stayed on the court, it would make the court look bad. It would undermine public confidence in the court. It's remarkable, you know, lots of folks have sort of lined up the allegations against Justice Fortas with some of the reporting about Justice Thomas. Forget the sort of the the factual relationship, right? It's remarkable that the institutional conversation has evolved, or I would say devolved, right, so much in a half century.
0: Dan Epps, what does the Fortas example and this current example tell us about what kind of public pressure is Effective uh, today, as you both have suggested, the court adopted the ethics code because of a broad bipartisan consensus that the justices shouldn't be above the law and that they should be bound by ethics rules along with other judges. By contrast, in your article, The False Promise of Jurisdiction Stripping, which I'm now just reading the summary of and looks totally fascinating, you say that the conventional understanding is wrong that jurisdiction stripping is effective, although Congress may have the power to do it. In practical terms, it's unlikely to succeed uh, because the court has ways of fighting back. Does that suggest that kind of openly partisan court curbing measures like jurisdiction stripping may not work, whereas creating a public consensus about the need for uh, good behavior might?
1: So I'd certainly say that, you know, to the extent that everybody in the public agrees the justices are doing something wrong, that is going to be much more effective as a, you know, a, you know regulatory tool, right? I mean, the court is going to be much more likely to respond to public criticism when it sees um, that criticism is coming from uh, all sides. I wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, endorse uh, the idea that it can't be effective if it's seen as, you know, kind of partisan. I think that you can look back at, at some of the you know, very early historical examples, which you know you have to see through a, a partisan lens. You know, Congress uh, canceling the court's term—you know—that was the product of a very uh, intense partisan uh, political debate. And Steve mentioned the Fortis precedent, which I think is is really fascinating because it, it it has you know kind of flavors of both in the sense that there was this public, you know, once the news got out, and I you know I think it's I think it's probably fair to say that the stuff that we learned. Uh, about uh, Justice Fortas was maybe uh, more troubling than what we've learned about Justice Thomas so far in that there was a little bit more reason to think there might have been an actual quid pro quo here from someone who had interest uh, before the court. And so there was enough kind of public, you know, controversy about that that it was very, very hard, would have been very, very hard for him to remain on the court. That said, it was happening in this, you know, intensely partisan um, backdrop where, you know, uh, you know, President Johnson was trying to move him over to be chief justice. He was really close with, uh, President Johnson. Uh, Steve's book has some really fascinating stuff about Fortis's, uh, role in, uh, President Johnson's, um, election, uh, to the Senate. Um, and the Republicans are trying to kind of stall things out so that they can get, the, you know, their own person on the court, which is, uh, ultimately, uh, successful. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think it it shows you that um, things that are, you know, kind of initially motivated by partisan reasons uh, can't be effective. I think it maybe depends a little bit on, you know, what exactly comes to light and how troubling people find it, even if the initial motivation is partisan.
0: Steve, how much of the current controversy reflects concern about partisanship, justices traveling with Conservative donors, for example, are speaking at uh, organizations devoted to conservative activities. And how much has to do with appearance of ethics issues, stock ownership, and uh, getting favors from friends. And I, you know, you know uh, w- historically, have efforts to control the court dealt more with partisanship or with individual allegations of corruption?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really hard to separate them out, Jeff, right, because we're seeing such alignment between the critics of the court and the sort of the polarity of the justices who they're criticizing. Um, so, you know, the Fortas example is is a great counter example, right? Fortas was a liberal Democratic appointee pushed off the court by a liberal Republican chief justice during a Republican presidency, Uh, Right. In a moment where the move was actually so perfectly institution preserving, um, where, you know, Warren, I think, to his credit, um, thought it was more important for the institution to let Nixon fill Fortas' seat, even though Warren and Nixon were, of course, bitter enemies dating back to their times in California together. Um, I think part of the mess we're in today, Jeff, is because the court today is so uniformly divided, right? Because for the first time in the court's history over the last, you know, 13 years, the ideological division among the justices perfectly aligns with the party of the president who appointed them, which had never been true before 2010. It is increasingly difficult to separate out um, what are partisan or ideological critiques from what are really institutional critiques. And I think that's, you know, I mean, I I don't mean to, to go back to my book, but like part of what the book is trying to do is to actually get us to talk about the court in more institutionalist terms in the hope that maybe there's common cause to be found across the ideological spectrum that, you know, it's a good thing for the justices to look like they're behaving above board, um, right? That it's a good thing for the court to be perceived as not being in the pockets of wealthy benefactors. I mean, I just, you know, these ought to be uncontroversial, non-ideologically infused principles And I think, Jeff, part of why it's so hard to have any meaningful conversation about Supreme Court reform, part of why I think President Biden's Supreme Court Reform Commission wasn't able to make any headway is because we have so much trouble right now differentiating between the institutional critiques and the ideological critiques so that even when folks like me make institutional critiques, we are accused of being disingenuous and of of sort of hiding Ideological critiques behind institutional critiques. That's, you know, that's, I think, part of why it's been so hard to make progress on the court reform conversation, at least outside of the court. And just to go back to where we started, part of why it's so remarkable that the court took this step in the first place.
0: That's an optimistic uh, take on the current reform. As you say, it could be viewed as a triumph of institutionalism. And indeed, the commentary on Canon B notes that the Supreme Court consists of nine members who sit together. The loss of even one justice may undermine the fruitful interchange of minds, which is indispensable to the Supreme Court's decision process. Here's all nine justices talking about why selective refusals can have a distorting effect on the institution itself. Dan, in that sense, is this a good thing for the ability of the court to act as a court?
1: You know, I I do think it shows uh, something you know, important about the way the court is functioning right now. You know, as Steve noted uh, a moment ago, um, we do have a court that is, you know, ideology matches partisan affiliation, right? I mean, the justices are no longer party members, but, you know, they were appointed by presidents of particular parties. And um, I think there's a lot of reason to think, uh, that's troubling for, for many reasons. Um, you know, in part, it's going to change how people perceive the court and whether it's a political institution. But it does uh, show you, and the justices, I think, really try very hard in various ways to convince the public that that's not what's happening behind the scenes. They talk about how much they like each other. They talk about how much they have in common. They talk about how they think they're all acting in good faith. Um, and even the the liberal justices who are really you know, kind of, uh, you know, in terms of winning cases are not doing very well, they still try to remind us of that. So, I mean, this is just another example of that, which is, you know, whatever their substantive disagreements about the law, they seem to all share some larger view about the institution and uh, its uh, integrity.
0: Steve, you talk about in your great book ways that the court could shore up its institutional legitimacy. We see some other recent developments of the court reacting to public criticism of its practices, including Justice Kavanaugh very recently endorsing the end of nationwide injunctions. Are there other areas where the court is responding to criticism and trying to shore itself up as an institution?
2: So, you know, I think one big one is how the court has been handling emergency applications. I mean, again, this is my soapbox. So, you know, we're, we're, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a, a, a stay. Um, the You know, I think the sort of the court has, in response to criticisms from Justice Kagan and even from Chief Justice Roberts, I think been a little more selective in when it's granting emergency relief over the last 12 to 18 months I think you can even date the sort of beginning of this trend to this very cryptic, concurring opinion that Justice Barrett wrote in October 2021 in a case about um, whether healthcare workers in Maine could be required to be vaccinated against COVID. Um, and, and, you know, Jeff, what that says to me is that there are contexts away from the high profile culture war disputes and away from high-profile statutory and constitutional debates where the justices really, or at least some of the justices, really are thinking in institutional terms, Um, not necessarily the same way I would if I were them, but at least, you know, what makes the most sense for us at this stage. You know, you mentioned Justice Kavanaugh's recent um, statement in the Florida anti-drag law case about nationwide injunctions. I mean, I, I think there's really an interesting emerging split between Kavanaugh and Barrett and the chief justice on one hand and Thomas Alito and Gorsuch on the other about these kinds of procedural maneuvers that to me is at least in part a response to the critiques that they've received. Um, so I think that's another example. Um, I think the court is, you know, sort of changing some of its behaviors in more subtle ways in response to public complaints. I mean, this is, this is a really wonky one, um, but, the, you know, Justice Alito when he would issue administrative stays, used to have them expire at eleven fifty nine p.m. Now they expire at five p.m. Um, I, I think that's a response to someone saying to him, you know, there's no reason to keep people up until midnight. Um, like these are little things, Jeff, but they are all I think signs of the justices actually listening to what folks are saying. Not always saying yes, you're right, we're going to change it, but not always saying no. And I think you know. It should be telling to us that the place where this appears to have the most purchase is institutional issues about the court unrelated to specific substantive legal questions.
0: Very interesting indeed. Time for final thoughts in this great discussion as Thanksgiving approaches. Dan Epps, these are extraordinarily challenging times for the rule of law, where the legitimacy of course, may continue to be challenged on many fronts. Um, Thoughts about ways that the Supreme Court productively can listen to institutional suggestions for shoring up its legitimacy and areas where it might continue to do that in the future?
1: Yeah, it's a very you know, hard, big-picture question, and I, I share the the, the big-picture concerns about the rule of law, I do think one really important component of that is for people to believe that law as a project is not partisan. And that's why, you know, going back to something we talked about a minute ago, that's why this idea that the justices now are, are party-aligned in terms of ideology is so troubling if we have the conservative decisions are just republicans and the liberal votes are always democrats i i do think that that can be threatening to that idea that that people um on you know the left are just going to start saying you know this is why should we listen to this court this is a republican court you know what's in it for me right and and for the project of constitutionalism uh, to work, and I think the project of law more generally, people have to be willing to abide by and respect decisions where they don't win. And I do think that, you know, you know, we haven't you know lost that uh, yet, but we are that is that notion, I think, is under threat um, more than it ever has been, you know, probably in a couple of generations. And um, to the extent the court, can try to hold down the middle just a little bit. Um I think that's going to be really good for the country. I don't expect them to start, you know, uh, you know, going flip-flopping on liberal and conservative decisions all the time. I do think, you know, one reason why the court has been able to maintain so much prestige is that they really have decided cases that kind of, you know, both sides of our divided country like, you know, you have a court that's made up of Republicans, but they still uh, voted, you know, one of them voted in favor of uh, gay marriage. And so you, the more the court can, can like not give in to the temptation to just opt for all the, you know, conservative wins, I, I think that's good uh, for the rule of law and the more that the liberal justices can you know, try to do what they can to maintain uh, that middle ground, I think that's really, you know, the court lives or dies in that space.
0: A great definition of judicial legitimacy. People have to be willing to abide by decisions where they don't win, you said. And to the extent the court can hold down the middle a little bit, that's good. Steve Vladek reflections about ways that the court can maintain its nonpartisan legitimacy in a fiercely divided age as Thanksgiving approaches.
2: Well, you know, the justices control which cases they hear, um, and I think we don't account for that enough in talking about how the court looks. I, Jeff, I think it's entirely possible that by the end of this term, there are going to be a lot of stories about how the court took a moderate turn, um, if for no other reason than because they're granting so many cases where the Fifth Circuit went very, very, very far to the right. Um and where I think the, the relevant point is not going to be that the court is moderate. It's just that it's going to be less extreme than the Fifth Circuit. But that will have value unto itself. Um, I think the real question and the one that we ought to at least start saying out loud is what the Supreme Court looks like depending upon the two most likely outcomes of the election next November. You know, a, a, a Supreme Court during a second Biden administration or a Supreme Court during a second Trump administration I think we're gonna have two very different views of what we're gonna want the court's relationship with the political branches to look like in those two different administrations. And to me, the way to sort of convince folks that this is not about ideology is exactly to Dan's point, right? Is to make the point that we're gonna want a legitimate court in both of those circumstances. Um, And that might lead the court in different directions, right? But that's the common theme here, is that unless you really don't want a court anymore, and I'm not one of those progressives, you know, how do we get a court that can be both a part of the separation of powers during a second Biden administration, and perhaps the critical bulwark against a second Trump administration? And it's the kinds of reforms that are going to shore up the court in both of those scenarios that we should be especially focused on over the next 12 months.
0: We're going to want a legitimate court regardless of who wins the next election. Fine nonpartisan wisdom uh, from Steve Loddick. Thank you so much, Steve Lodick and Dan Epps, for a, a meaningful discussion of this very important topic as Thanksgiving approaches in 2023. Lots of gratitude to both of you and to We The People listeners for learning and growing and educating yourself about these crucially important constitutional issues during this important time for America. Thanks to all. See you soon. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollock, and Samson Mastaschare. It was engineered by Bill Pollock. Research was provided by Samson Mastaschare, Cooper Smith, and Yara DeRese. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. Always remember in your waking or sleeping hours that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. As Thanksgiving approaches, it would be wonderful if you could make a donation of any amount, $5, $10, or more to support the mission. And you can do that by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or by logging on to constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, happy Thanksgiving. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.